Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and financial regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, the General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on developments in corporate governance and related CII advocacy activities in connection with the administration's initiative to reform the U.S. financial regulatory system. This update covers the period from January 4th to February 5th, 2020. So let's start with the U.S. Congress. On January 13th, the United States House of Representatives passed H.R. 4335, the 8K Trading Gap Act, by a vote of 384 to 7. This bill would require public companies to put in place policies and procedures designed to prohibit officers and directors from trading company stock after the company has determined that a significant corporate event has occurred, but before the company has filed a Form 8K with the SEC. The bill's sponsor, Carolyn Maloney from New York, stated, quote, Corporate executives shouldn't be allowed to trade on significant information ahead of the public and investors, but that's exactly what's happening because of this legal loophole. During a floor speech before H.R. 4335 went to a vote, Michael Nicholas, the Democratic delegate to the U.S. House of Representatives for Guam's at-large congressional district, noted CII's public support for the bill. A Senate companion bill, H.R. 4335, was introduced by Senator Chris Van Hollen from Maryland, That bill, S-2488, was referred to the Senate Banking Committee in September following its introduction. There has been no action in the Senate regarding the bill since its introduction. Let's move now to recent activities at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. The SEC held an open meeting on January 8th at which it published for comment by a vote of 3 to 2, a proposed order that would require equities exchanges and FINRA to file with the Commission a single new national market system equity data plan governing the dissemination of market data for national market system stocks. In a statement, the SEC said, The structure of the equity markets and the corporate structure exchanges have changed dramatically since the adoption of Regulation NMS in 2005. The SEC statement explains, quote, the speed and dispersion of trading activity have increased substantially. Most exchanges have converted from entities mutually owned by their members to entities that are owned by shareholders and that also offer proprietary market data products and exchange groups have emerged consolidating much of the voting power and control of the equity data plans, unquote. The SEC statement goes on to say that these Market developments have heightened conflicts of interest between the exchange's commercial interests and their regulatory obligations. SEC Commissioner Robert Jackson, who voted against the proposal, stated that now that stock exchanges are public companies that operate both public data feeds and profit from selling superior private ones, they have no economic interest in producing robust public data on stock prices. He also said, quote, by proposing an order under a national market system plan, we're asking the exchanges to tell us how best to address the conflicts of interest that currently allow them to profit by controlling the public data feed while selling superior private data, unquote. Commissioner Jackson indicated he's skeptical that the SEC's order will produce beneficial results. He stated, quote, No one should be surprised when the exchanges respond that rather than give investors votes on the operation of the public feed, they'd rather continue controlling it themselves, unquote. SEC Commissioner Allison Heron-Lee also dissented. She stated, quote, While the proposed order takes steps toward addressing the conflicts of interest inherent in having for-profit exchanges both oversee the securities information processors and selling their own competing proprietary data streams, it unfortunately falls short in safeguarding the public interest, unquote. Following consideration of any comments received on the proposed order, the SEC will consider what action to take, including whether to issue a final order requiring the participants to file a new consolidated data plan. If the Commission does issue a final order, the resulting new plan would be published for public comment. Comments on the SEC's proposed order are due on February 28th. 
In other SEC news, according to recent press reports, SEC Commissioner Robert Jackson plans to leave the commission on February 14, 2020, to return to his teaching position at New York University Law School. Chairman Jay Clayton issued a statement on January 16th on Commissioner Jackson's departure, noting that he and the commission have, quote, benefited from substantive engagement with Commissioner Jackson on a range of issues important to our markets, unquote. Also on January 16th, a memorandum was released by the SEC's Division of Economic Research and Analysis responding to CII's request for data behind a key table in the commission's proposed rule to regulate proxy advisors. Table 2 in the economic analysis of that proposal outlines company disputes with proxy advisors over the content of the reports. The response by the Division of Economic Research and Analysis suggests that the division performed no analysis of its own to corroborate the veracity of the company's claims in Table 2. Also on January 16th, CII sent a letter to the SEC expressing concerns about plans by the New York Stock Exchange to expand the use of direct listings by companies. While acknowledging that CII generally has supported permitting direct listings, the letter points out that recent reports have revealed certain shareholder legal rights that are vulnerable in direct listings. The letter explains, quote, in other words, investors in direct listing companies may have fewer legal protections than investors in IPOs, unquote. This added risk is playing out in a lawsuit in which Slack's shareholders are suing the company, claiming it failed to fully disclose certain risks when it sold securities, because not all of the investors suing Slack can directly trace their shares to a registration statement. Slack is arguing that the suit should be dismissed. CI's letter to the SEC asks that the SEC prioritize establishing a system of traceable shares before approving an expanded direct listing regime. On January 28th, CII appealed the January 16th determination by the SEC's Division of Economic Risk and Analysis that the Commission's staff memo and data file referenced earlier were responsive to CII's November Freedom of Information Act request. The determination by the Division of Economic Risk and Analysis contains a description of the methodology employed by its staff to analyze and summarize companies' allegations and the amended proxy statement filings from which those allegations were made. Our appeal points out, however, that the memo and data file do not reveal the analysis itself, that is, how the Division of Economic Risk and Analysis categorized each company allegation. CII filed two comment letters with the SEC on January 30th and a related press release on January 31st opposing the agency's proposed rules that would undercut important shareholder rights, hamper the ability of investors to cast informed votes at public company annual meetings, and restrict the collective voice of shareholders on issues of concern at public companies in which they invest. The two proposals are the most significant attempt by the SEC to date to limit the voice of shareholders since the commission was created in 1934. They would tighten regulation of proxy advisory firms and shareholder proposals in ways that CI believes are fundamentally flawed and unnecessary. Adopted both proposals would introduce complexity in micromanagement, proxy voting, and in shareholder company engagement processes that will work well for decades. CI urges the SEC to withdraw both proposals and focus instead on festering problems in the proxy voting system. Both letters provide CI's overall feedback on the rules and then respond to the many questions posed by the SEC staff. CI believes the SEC should be tackling urgent obstacles in the proxy voting infrastructure first before completing these two proposals. CI Executive Director Ken Burr stated that, quote, the SEC has put the cart before the horse, unquote. He added that, quote, the SEC's first priority should be to fix the creaky proxy plumbing, the nuts and bolts of the way that proxy cards are solicited and votes counted, unquote.
Mr. Birch also noted that at the SEC's November 2018 roundtable on the proxy process, there was striking unanimity among participants that modernizing the proxy infrastructure was the most urgent reform. He added, quote, putting roadblocks in the way of shareholder voting in a system that does not deliver accurate vote counts does not make sense, unquote. CI and many institutional investors are especially alarmed by the heavy-handed regulatory structure the SEC proposed for proxy advisory firms. The SEC would require the firms to give companies two separate reviews of research, delaying delivery reports to investor clients by more than a week. It would constrict the time the firms have to collect, verify, and analyze company data, complete reports, and get them to paying clients. That, in turn, would severely squeeze the time investors have to scrutinize proxy advice, do their own analysis, and vote their shares. It would also drive up costs to investors. Inevitably, the review process will increase management influence over proxy advice, jeopardizing the independence of proxy advisors. CI believes the SEC's economic analysis fails to support the costly new regulatory framework that the Commission would impose on proxy advisory firms. CI's own detailed review of alleged errors by proxy advisory firms submitted in October found a factual error rate on a report basis of just 0.5% to 0.123%. CI also questions whether the SEC has the authority to regulate proxy advisors in the manner proposed. The Commission's interpretation that proxy advice is solicitation under federal securities rules faces a legal challenge. CI believes that issue ultimately will be decided in court. If the SEC insists that proxy advisory firms provide advance notice to companies, CI believes that any mandated corporate review and response period should be for, at a maximum of two business days, the company should get facts and data only, and only if they file definitive proxy statements at least 50 days before the shareholder meeting. CI also believes the SEC should require companies to reimburse proxy advisors for reasonable expenses associated with required review and response and provide proxy advisors with a safe harbor from liability under Rule 14A9 if they comply with all the requirements of any final rule. Also on January 30th, the SEC issued by a vote of 3 to 2 proposed amendments to certain financial disclosure requirements of Regulation SK that are intended to eliminate duplicative disclosures and modernize and enhance management's discussion and analysis disclosures. The Commission also voted unanimously to issue guidance providing registrants with key performance indicators and metrics in MDNA disclosures. The SEC's releases are part of a comprehensive evaluation of the Commission's disclosure requirements recommended in the staff report on review of disclosure requirements regulation SK mandated pursuant to the 2012 Jobs Act. Specifically, the proposed amendments will eliminate three disclosures that are in the words of the Commission are, quote, largely duplicative of other requirements, unquote. Those three disclosures are first, item 301, which requires disclosure of selected financial data, item 302A, which mandates disclosure of selected quarterly financial data with specified operating results, and item 302B, which requires registrants engaged in oil gas producing activities to disclose information about those activities in each period presented. The Commission is also proposing to amend item 303, which requires a registrant disclose the information about its financial conditions changes in financial condition and results of operations by, among other measures, first, adding new item 303A that would state the principal objectives of MDNA, second, replacing item 303A4 with an instruction emphasizing the importance of discussing off-balancing arrangements in the broader context of MDNA disclosure, third, eliminating item 303A5, which requires a tabular disclosure of contractual obligations, fourth, adding item 303A, an explicit requirement to disclose critical accounting estimates, and fifth, revising the interim MDNA requirement in item 303B by permitting registrants to compare their most recently completed quarter to either the corresponding quarter of the prior year or to the immediately preceding quarter. 
In addition, the SEC is proposing corresponding amendments that would apply to foreign private issuers providing disclosures on Forms 20F and 40F as appropriate. Comments on the proposal will be due 60 days following its publication in the Federal Register. As of the date of this podcast, the proposal has not yet been published in the Federal Register. On February 4th, CI submitted a comment letter to the SEC as a supplement to our January 30th letter on the proposed regulation proxy advisory firms. A letter focuses on claims by certain corporate representatives referenced in Table 2 of the proposal. Those claims are that there are pervasive factual inaccuracies in proxy advisory reports. CII believes uh, those claims were relied on in the release and in the decision by a majority of the SEC commissioners to support proposing a new regulatory regime for proxy advisors. Our letter sets forth a detailed analysis of those claims. That analysis leads CII to the conclusion that the claims of pervasive errors in proxy advisory reports are unfounded and misleading and do not provide a basis for the proposed rulemaking. On January 9th, CII sent a letter to the board of Intuit. The letter thanks the board members for opposing a shareholder proposal to adopt a bylaw prohibiting class action lawsuits on any matter subject to arbitration. The New York State Common Retirement Fund sent an exempt solicitation to Intuit shareholders urging them to vote against the proposal. The Intuit proposal was filed by Harvard Law School professor Hal Scott. Mr. Scott argues in his supporting statement that the United States and Canada are the only developed countries where shareholders can form a class and sue their company for alleged violations of securities laws. Mr. Scott claims that this system, quote, effectively uh, circulates money within the same investor base minus substantial attorney fees, unquote, and results in companies being exposed to costly litigation that also consumes management's time. Mr. Scott also claims that arbitration is an effective alternative for class actions. Intuit's management recommended the shareholders vote against the proposal, noting that during engagements with the Intuit shareholders, they never expressed an interest in an adoption of this type of bylaw. In addition, Intuit management points out that Mr. Scott's attempt to have Johnson & Johnson adopt a similar proposal is currently the subject of a lawsuit. Management goes on to say that in light of these circumstances, adopting a mandatory arbitration bylaw would expose Intuit to litigation. Rather than addressing the issue in a shareholder proposal, Intuit management recommends that it be addressed through the appropriate legislative or regulatory rulemaking process. CII's January 9th letter to Intuit's executive chairman and lead independent director points to CII's longstanding membership-approved policies, stating that, quote, companies should not attempt to bar share owners from the courts through the introduction of forced arbitration clauses, unquote. Letter also explains that disputes that go to arbitration rather than the court system generally do not become part of the public record, thereby losing their deterrent effect. A letter also states that private shareholder actions help the SEC identify and address corporate wrongdoing and poor governance practices, and decisions by courts of private actions have developed much of the law governing securities fraud. The New York State Common Retirement Fund exempt solicitation argues that forced arbitration would, quote, effectively deny or greatly diminish the ability of investors to seek meaningful recourse for losses incurred as a result of corporate wrongdoing, unquote. Following the annual meeting, Intuit reported that only 2.4% of shareholders supported Mr. Scott's proposal. That completes my corporate governance and regulatory update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff at cii.org or give me a call at 202-822-0800. Till next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. 
The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.